Joanne Lees lies under the bush, very frightened because she's scared that any headlights that come down the road could be the man returning. Within a matter of uh, a few seconds, she is assaulted by the driver, the unknown man. The strange guy says, well, no problem there. All you'd have to do is shoot the dog, get another one later. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today we're going to look at one of the great Australian murder mysteries, the Falconio case of 2001. The reason we're doing this is that a new documentary series, Murder in the Outback, goes to air with the Seven Network on Sunday. And this will be run out in four parts over four weeks. This documentary, Big Effort, has been run already in the United Kingdom, where the Falconio case is, of course, big news, because Peter Falconio, who vanished back in 2001 uh, on the Stewart Highway north of Alice Springs, and his girlfriend, Joanne Lees, are English. And so this case has been even bigger in England than it is in Australia. I've followed the Falconio case fairly closely in recent years because an old acquaintance of ours, Andrew Fraser, has taken a huge interest in it for more than 10 years. Regular listeners will know that Andrew Fraser was a leading gangland lawyer in this town, represented some of the uh, baddest people in Australia, ranging from Alan Bond to the Morans to the Wall Street killers. And Andrew Fraser, of course, came unstuck himself when he was Uh, prosecuted over a cocaine importation matter and served some five years in Victorian jails before getting out of jail about 15 years ago. And Fraser, soon after getting out of jail, although he was no longer a practising lawyer, was approached by associates or friends of a man called Bradley John Murdoch, And most of us will remember Murdoch's name because he is the man who was charged and convicted of the Falconio murder. Ultimately, he was jailed in the Northern Territory in 2005. And as we speak today, he is still serving a long sentence of 28 years without parole for the murder of Peter Falconio, a murder which we have presumed happened because In fact, there's no body to be found. There was no weapon located or bullets or brain matter or any of the other details that are usually found with murders. He was convicted largely on very strong circumstantial evidence as opposed to smoking gun evidence. This case really begins on the evening of Saturday the 14th of July 2001 when two English tourists, uh, a young couple, Peter Falconio and Joanne Lees, get in their fairly rattletrap combi van that they've obtained to drive around Australia and they leave Alice Springs at about four o'clock in the afternoon to head north towards Darwin. Interestingly, the couple did this despite advice that they shouldn't leave that late in the day because of the danger of running into kangaroos and being broken down out on the highway all night. But they ignored that advice for reasons best known to themselves and headed north 
up the Stewart Highway, which of course is a very long, very straight road between Alice Springs and Darwin. There is some disagreement about whether they stopped on the road and where they stopped on the road before the event that made them world news. But there is no doubt that something happened at around 7.30pm that night. And the story that Joanne Lees told later to a stunned Australia and a stunned Britain and to the rest of the world was that a car drove up beside them and the driver indicated that there were sparks or something like that coming from the combi's exhaust. And so they pulled over, as you might, and the person in the other car, which was a Toyota ute, by the look of a four-wheel drive ute, with a covered-in back, a canvas back, it pulled up behind them. Joanne Lees was sitting in the front of the combi and didn't get out of the car, but her boyfriend, Peter Falconio, jumps out, walks to the back of the vehicle, says something, walks back, grabs his cigarettes, and then walks back to the rear of the vehicle again. And Joanne has been asked to rev the vehicle to see if they can make it spark, to see what's wrong with it. Then she hears a bang, a loud bang. Now, initially, she thinks it's the car backfiring because it used to do that. But within a matter of uh, a few seconds, she is assaulted by the driver, the unknown man, a man that she describes as having long straggly hair, a baseball cap and a droopy moustache. This man ties her up, manacles her hands, tapes her ankles together, more or less, and shoves her out on the side of the road. Subsequently, he pushes her into the back of his ute. At some point, while the man is out of sight, presumably uh, getting rid of her boyfriend's body, we don't know, Joanne Lees escapes. She gets herself out of the vehicle. She gets up and hobbles or runs into the scrub, into the bush. Now, this is not really bush. It is more just low scrub. And she gets herself away on an angle from the vehicle. And although she ends up only about 35 metres diagonally from the highway, she's actually much further than that distance from where the vehicle is because she heads off on a diagonal. And she gets beneath a bush and subsequently the man returns with a torch to look for her. Now, she's not sure what he's been doing. She's clearly terrified. She lies very still under the bush. There are those who doubt this account, but I see no reason to, to doubt this bit. And the man walks around with the torch looking for her, accompanied by his dog, which apparently she noticed that it was a spotty dog and she thought it was a, a cattle dog of some sort. It turned out to be some sort of Dalmatian dog, which is not, in fact, a breed known for its brains or its tracking ability. They're strictly for decoration. Ultimately, the man does not find her, which is astonishing given she is not that far away, but it's dark. He's probably worried about what to do with the body, if he indeed has a body, and it could be that he is drug-affected. He gets in his vehicle and leaves. Joanne Lees lies under the bush, very frightened, because she's scared that any headlights that come down the road could be the man returning. 
and that that would be a trick. And if she jumps out in front of a car, it may well be him. So she waits very wisely. She waits until she sees a truck and hears a truck coming in the distance. She would know that it's a big road train because they are, you know, several metres high. They have lights all over them and you would hear the enormous diesel motor in the distance. And so when she hears the truck coming, she runs out on the road in front of the truck. The trucky jams on his brakes and he and his co-driver rescue Joanne Lees, free her from the manacles and the tape and then drive her to Barrow Creek, the nearest outpost of civilization. And so they pull up at the Barrow Creek pub late on that night. It's uh, after midnight. The two truckies bring Joanne Lees inside. She's very shaken and upset, naturally. Uh, she's grazed. Her, her knees and her elbows are grazed from where she's been dropped on the road. One of the truckies, a very kind man called Rodney, um, we don't uh, use his surname, he's no longer with us, but Rodney took her into the bathrooms and got the rest of the tape off her and wiped um, some of the you know, dirt and stuff off her and then brought her out and presumably they bought her a drink and talked to her and so on. Now, naturally they called the police or someone called the police. The police initially thought it was some sort of joke and hung up on them, which is unfortunate, but eventually they made it clear that they were serious, deadly serious, and the police turned up early next day, which is interesting that they felt they were so busy they couldn't come out that night. But anyway, they've turned up next day early and they have taken statements from Joanne Lees and statements from both the truck drivers. And that is interesting because the statement that one of the truck drivers gives, Vince Miller, his statement is later, he says, altered quite a lot by the police by the time it comes to trial. The police inspect the site. They find not much. They find three little sort of separate pools of blood all together, if that makes sense, and a little bit of dirt sort of kicked up there, which, of course, when, could have been scuffed up by somebody's foot. Apparently, they do not find many signs of footprints or of dog footprints or of anything else that's very useful to confirm Joanne Lees' story. Now, it's hard to know what this means, if anything. Does it mean they weren't looking hard enough? Does it mean they're not good trackers? Does it mean they were somehow slightly the wrong bit? Does it mean that Joanne Lees actually got bamboozled and said she was on this side of the road and in fact, she was on the other side of the road and that they were always looking in the wrong spot. This is hard to know, but apparently they didn't find a lot to confirm her story, which began a chain of events where the police initially had some doubts about Joanne's value as a witness because they found a lot of inconsistencies in her account. Now, to be fair to her... She was terrified. It was night time. Uh, she had, she admitted openly that she'd smoked a joint of marijuana and that um, 
her memory was probably affected in some respects by that. Uh, it's conceivable, I suppose, that she might also have taken other drugs that weekend. Um, they were a young couple from the north of England who knocked around a bit. Peter Falconio was in the building trade back in England. He was a, a bit of a knockabout young fellow. Uh, he wasn't, you know, a uh, Salvation Army volunteer. And so it's quite conceivable that while having a good time in Alice Springs that weekend, that they had consumed other forms of drug and that that might have made her memory that little bit hazier. And this could explain why her account of what happened appeared to those who first heard it to have inconsistencies. And it meant that she sort of got off on the wrong foot with the police, who I think initially wondered whether she was perhaps some sort of co-offender rather than a victim. And it was only later that they satisfied themselves that she was indeed a victim and not a co-conspirator who had conspired to get rid of her boyfriend. So the Falconio case is a massive thing for weeks and months and it gradually ebbs away because there's no breakthrough in the case. Peter Falconio has vanished, presumed murdered. Joanne Lees has been interviewed at length and she's gone back to her home in England. Then, as far as the public knows, and as far as Joanne Lees knows, the next thing that happens is that in 2003, a man called Bradley John Murdoch is arrested and charged over the presumed death of Peter Falconio and the attempted abduction of Joanne Lees. Joanne Lees is, in fact, on an overseas holiday in Sicily when she hears the news and she immediately looks it up on the internet and sees a photograph of Bradley John Murdoch, which is interesting because soon after she was required to pick his photograph out of a lineup of photographs to see if he matched the man that she said had attacked her two years earlier. A troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. So how did the police come to find Bradley John Murdoch? Well, as often happens, there's a story behind the story. What happens so much in crime circles is that two crooks do things together and then crook A goes off in his merry way and crook B is arrested for something. And crook B, being a crook and being treacherous and uh, wanting to save his own neck, he says, listen, if you go easy on me, I'll give you a better pinch. I'll give you uh, a better arrest. And so a man called James Heppy, who comes under police uh, notice for large-scale drug dealing, tells the police that 
an associate of his, Bradley John Murdoch, paranoid about the Falconio case, and it seems clear to him that he probably did it because there are indicators that he did, such as the similarity of his vehicle, such as the fact that he has used similar manacles, another alleged case where he abducted and assaulted a woman and her daughter, and the similarities seem striking. Also, Heppy was in business with Murdoch. He would send him north every month, regular as clockwork, with a shipment of cannabis, which Murdoch would pack very neatly in his back of his four-wheel drive ute, disguised with um, all sorts of things, and he would take it up the highway through Alice Springs to Darwin and deliver it, and there it would be sold, and he would make good money by doing that um, regular delivery. Murdoch apparently was a very careful criminal. He um, used to repaint his bull bar different colours and change the appearance of his vehicle slightly so that it would not look identical on each trip. Interestingly, no one but the police knew about Murdoch for quite a long time. He first came to police notice from Heppy in late 2001. Uh, In 2002, he was charged over abducting a woman and her daughter in South Australia. He appeared on that charge in a court in South Australia and he was acquitted, but he was immediately arrested in court by Northern Territory Police who were waiting for him. And those who were there that day, including an experienced court reporter, got the impression that the charges against Murdoch in South Australia were in part designed in order to get his DNA sample on the record so that the police would have a DNA sample, a legitimate DNA sample on their database in order to compare with samples that they got from elsewhere. Because it turns out that there is or was a speck of unknown blood on the T-shirt that Joanne Lees was wearing on the night of the incident, on the night that Peter Volconio was presumably shot. And that speck of blood did not belong to her and it did not belong to Peter Falconio. It didn't match his DNA or the DNA of the blood found on the ground. And so it was assumed that that unknown DNA belonged to the assailant. And indeed it came to pass that when the police obtained Bradley John Burdock's DNA, it matched the tiny speck of blood on Joanne Lees' T-shirt. And that was really the basis of the case against Brad Murdoch. And from there, everything else flowed. From there, the police, as investigators naturally do, set out to prove that that man fitted the profile of the killer and that that man's movements fitted the movements of the wanted man and they were very keen to uh, establish that he was the killer. One of the things they came up with was security footage 
from a Shell service station back in Alice Springs. Now, this was uh, very late at night. This was taken on the same night as Peter Falconio disappeared. And a, a biggish man with a droopy moustache and a cap and longish hair walked into this service station and uh, bought certain items and he went back out to his four-wheel drive ute, which had a canopy on the back, and he got in it and drove away. Now, that footage, fairly grainy, fairly rough, did look like Bradley John Murdoch and his vehicle. There's no doubt that it did look like him and his vehicle. And the police were doing handsprings about this because if that were him, they worked out that it was possible for him to have driven back from the Barrow Creek direction back down the Stewart Highway to Alice Springs, refuel his car, buy some food at the service station and then head off towards Darwin up the back way, the Tanami Desert Road, which is a different way to Darwin. And that would, of course, get him out of the search area and out of the entire district and up to Darwin before the alarm was raised. And if that man was Bradley Murdoch, that's what happened. However, according to experts who have been consulted by Andrew Fraser, that man was probably not Bradley Murdoch because the man filmed at the service station, although he looked like Bradley Murdoch in a general sense, and his vehicle did look like Bradley Murdoch's vehicle in a general sense, the expert a man who has given evidence in perhaps 80 trials where identity evidence is vital, said that the man in the film was probably 10 centimetres shorter than Bradley Murdoch. And Bradley Murdoch is a giant of a man. He's six foot five in the old money, which is close to two metres tall, metrically speaking. This is a very large man. He's very broad-shouldered. He's quite heavy. Uh, He would stand out in almost any company. He's probably the biggest man in jail in Darwin. And the man in the film at the Shell service station, Andrew Fraser says, and his expert says, was not that big. A layperson might look at it and not be sure. However, if you look closely, you do notice that the man in the film is shorter or appears to be shorter than the rear of the vehicle that he's driving. And when he walks past the corner of the vehicle, you can tell that his head is considerably lower than the top of the canopy of the vehicle. Those vehicles are under two metres high. They're around 1,900 millimetres high or just a little larger than that. And they generally are not taller even with roof racks than two metres because then they would not fit into underground car parks. And so it's reasonably easily established, if you trust the film, which is very grainy, to see that the man in the film appears to be lower than the vehicle, which appears to say that it's not Bradley Murdoch. And there goes 
one of the central planks of the prosecution against Murdoch. That's if it's right. It comes to pass that in 2005, Bradley Murdoch is convicted and jailed for 28 years without parole for the murder of Peter Falconio and the attempted abduction of Joanne Lees. But not everyone believes that Brad Murdoch is guilty. Some say there are big flaws in the prosecution case. At the top of the list of people who think there could be flaws in the case against Bradley John Murdoch for the murder of Peter Falconio is the aforementioned Andrew Fraser, former defence lawyer. One of Fraser's biggest objections and probably the most interesting and the most serious is that DNA evidence has moved on a lot in the last 19 years and that DNA technology is now more sophisticated. And Fraser has taken this case to two very respected experts in the field. And one is Professor Barry Botcher, who's an extremely well-known and respected scientist, who is in fact the scientist who blew apart the case against Lindy Chamberlain and exposed along the way the shortcomings of the Northern Territory Police. Professor Botcher and another expert, Dr Jeff MacDonald, are convinced that the only blood sample or DNA sample that links Bradley Murdoch to the Falconio case is a tiny droplet of blood found on Joanne Lees' T-shirt. What they don't know is how the droplet of blood got there. They do say it is, in fact, Murdoch's blood. It's a very small amount and everyone is puzzled about how it might have got there without there being other signs of blood. They can't really explain it. They say, and this is very important, they say that the other DNA evidence led at the trial back in 2005 linking Murdoch to the combi van, which appears to support the idea that Murdoch got into the combi van, handled the gear stick and the steering wheel. They say that those samples are no good, that they are weak, they are mixed, they are not strong samples and, in fact, could be someone else's DNA. And so they've cast massive doubt on the science of the conviction in 2005. They are now saying that modern science cannot place Bradley Murdoch inside the combi van. This, if true, is very interesting. Real science is not the only thing that raises eyebrows in this. Around the periphery of the case are some interesting stories, such as a former truck driver tracked down by Fraser. His name is Cook. He was sitting in the Barrow Creek Roadhouse in the days after the event in 2001. He sits next to a man he doesn't know who just looks like another outback drifter, and this guy's a, a lean, mean-looking guy. He's got longish hair. He's got the baseball cap that they all wear. He's wearing the check shirt uh, that, similar to the one described by Joanne Lees. And this strikes the trucky, Mr Cook, who says, words to the effect that you, you sort of match the description that the girl gave um, 
when she was uh, talking to the police, the guy that had attacked her and, and shot her boyfriend and so on, you've got the shirt, you've got the hair, you've got the cap. Um, it's a pity you haven't got the moustache. And the blokes apparently turned to him and said, oh, that's that was easy to shave off. And the truck driver doesn't know whether this guy's having a lend of him or is a strange cat or what. And they keep talking. And the truckie says, yeah, well, the other thing is, good thing you haven't got a dog or they'd arrest you. And the strange guy says, well, no problem there. All you'd have to do is shoot the dog, get another one later. It's a slightly bizarre conversation, but it's stuck in the mind of the truckie. Because within a day or two, he found out that the police had found a dog, a cattle dog, matching the description of uh, the cattle dog that Joanne Lee saw with the attacker. They found such a dog shot dead not far from the highway. And this would suggest to the truckie who spoke to Andrew Fraser on camera that the guy he was talking to made a red-hot suspect. Now, as far as anyone knows, that man was traced by the Northern Territory Police and exonerated. He was cleared and he was never called to uh, the court. He never appeared in court. There was no mention of him. But no one outside the police force knows how he was cleared or why he was cleared or on what grounds he was cleared on what sort of alibi evidence he was cleared. Interestingly, one other thing that that man said to the truckie was that he was camped not far from the highway and that when he heard that the police were putting up roadblocks and searching people, he buried a pound of dope, which just goes to show that in the Territory and the top end, there are plenty of dodgy characters up to no good. Any one of them, according to Andrew Fraser, would have made a good suspect in the Falconio case. Our former criminal lawyer, Andrew Fraser, can talk about this subject for hours. And in fact, he did talk to us on the podcast for a long time, but sadly, our lawyers decided that that material was too hot to go to air. And so if you want to hear Andrew Fraser give his considered opinions about this matter, please tune in to Channel 7 and watch the documentary, Murder in the Outback. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.